Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 41 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 10th of November. And Leon, this week we're talking to Nathan Klutman. That's right. Nathan Klutman is an IBIS World Senior Industry Analyst. And he's going to be talking to us all about Woolworth's decisions not to stock many of Coca-Cola Amatil's products under the iconic Mal. Franklin brand and Coke No Sugar. Should be very interesting. And then after that, we've got a session with AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the current bright state of the Australian share market. That's right. And uh, with the ASX uh, 200 breaking through 6,000 uh, for the first time since the GFC. So he's going to be talking to us all about what's ahead for share market. Good. And now let's listen to Nathan Klutman. Nathan Klutman, Woolworths has uh, stopped stocking uh, Coca-Cola's sugar-free drinks. Uh, what's your assessment of that? We're really starting to see that Woolworths is kind of starting to change their strategy in terms of the products they stock. Starting to follow more in terms of expanding their private label ranges, um, enticing customers in store with low prices such as bottled water and other whole, uh, goods such as bread and milk for very low prices such as a dollar or 60 cents for a bottle of water. We're starting to see that supermarkets are really starting to to do this strategy more and more. Uh, Cosmo Woolworths is starting to follow Audi in that respect. And um, it's really staying the way of bringing consumers in to their store. The issue that Woolworths said is that there's so much Coke around, uh, why should they stock another brand of Coke? Yeah. And you can see that on their supermarket shelves, there's a, a lot of brands, especially Coca-Cola and the big brands like Nestle. They're starting to see that they can use their shelf space for cheaper goods, um, for private label products, stuff which is cheaper and then consumers can come and store for that. What does that say about the uh, the Coca-Cola label? I mean, they, they seem to be struggling. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like we're starting to see that um, the big brands are kind of losing supermarket shelf space in Woolworths and Coles and Aldi. Um, and we're starting to see that brands are having to start to kind of innovate more so they remain on shelves. So you kind of like healthier products, more premium varieties, again, innovation, kind of new, interesting flavours. Uh, gourmet products and kind of marketing activity just so they can remain the supermarket shelves particularly out as as, as a middling out kind of in terms of produce in Australia. You start to see that you have the kind of lower end of the scales that can be increasingly dominated by private label products and then you have the other side where you have the more big gourmet premium brands and the consumers are demanding that and you have kind of brands in the middle which is starting to kind of uh, fall away slightly in supermarket shelves. So uh, Coles and Woolies are becoming like Aldi you're saying? They are moving towards that. Obviously, Aldi has expanded rapidly over the last decade or so, really starting to be a big part of the industry. Um, Cosmo was seeing that their kind of strategy in terms of private label products um, is working, and they're trying to entice customers in with their low prices, such as expanding their private label products. And it's really started a trend we see a bit more so in the UK, in the US, uh, when the UK and Europe, where private label products make around 40% of total sales. That figures around 25% in Australia, and we're starting to see this trending more is increasing more as the supermarkets increasingly expand their private label product ranges. So you're saying the uh, private labels will uh, in Australia will expand from 25 to 40%? Is that right? I think uh, 40% it might be a bit too high. The UK are, are quite ahead in terms of private label products. But you could start to see that 25% is could certainly be 30% over the next five years. And 
that's just kind of the trends which is going on in the Australian supermarkets industry. What does that uh, tell the brands? Well, the brands, they're going to have to innovate and expand and kind of like really try and get consumers demanding their product so they were made on supermarket shelves. Um, it's definitely you're seeing with Coke, with Arnott's and other big brands that they're going to have to increase their marketing or innovate in a way that they remain on supermarket shelves and not just get tossed away with other generic products. Oh, but that has uh, huge implications for Coke because uh, Coke has been struggling worldwide because of um, consumers shifting away from uh, sugar drinks. Yeah, well, Coke's issues are kind of more inter- grander in terms of consumer kind of demands. You know, health consciousness is on the rise. People are trying to drink less sugary drinks. Um, so Coke has issues that obviously they're trying to increase their marketing and also like investing and developing their kind of bottled water ranges to try and maintain demand. But it's just an issue what's happening a lot to these kind of um, soft drink brands such as uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. So what 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 can Coke do? Yeah, Coke, um, the company could kind of ways in terms of boosting kind of their market share again, invest more in kind of healthier trends, increase market activity, trying to just like possibly uh, release some premium products, really trying to just follow consumer demand because obviously soft drink demand is declining. And so Coke are going to have to innovate to really kind of drive demand in the future. So what kind of uh, innovation do you see Coke having to make uh, besides, uh, I don't know, bottled water and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, they've tried uh, recently with uh, Coke Stevia, Coke uh, Lights, you know, these ones with low sugar, low caffeine, um, new portion sizes to kind of deal with people don't want to drink a big glass or big bottle of Coke. They want to have a smaller just snack size, portion size. Uh, Coke, all these different things Coke have tried. Um, it still hasn't kind of stopped the demise of Coca-Cola, but it's sort of limited it as in consumers are trying to try these new kind of products such as Coke No Sugar now, although it's not on supermarket shelves as much. I believe uh, big brands are enjoying strong growth in New Zealand. Is that right? Um, yeah, the New Zealand supermarket industry is uh, slightly different from the Australian industry as um, heavy price discounting on branded products is um, rampant in the New Zealand industry. Um, private label products only make around 14%, 15% of total sales. So you can see that brands are still really enjoying the New Zealand industry. They're a lot more present on supermarket shelves. Nathan, this um, move away from the allegedly unhealthy sugar is that reflected in other things apart from sugary drinks? Oh, okay, I see what you mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're starting to see, like, across the kind of food produce that consumers are demanding less uh, sugary foods, in, like, especially in terms of um, and salty foods, fatty foods. We're seeing people eating a lot less red meat um, just because they're worried about the fat content. Um, and the same with salt in terms of, like, ready meals. Uh, consumers are really trying to move away from these kind of unhealthy diets and more towards kind of convenience foods, healthier foods, kind of fresher foods. And Woolworths and Coles are really starting to try and, like, appeal to these consumers, particularly in terms of freshness um Woolworths have kind of done a lot more kind of store layouts where first thing the consumer walks into is the kind of fresh and the fruit and the vegetables really trying to kind of appeal to kind of more fresh food demanding consumers it's already affected mcdonald's for example they've changed their range of products quite dramatically yeah you can see that a lot of these kind of fast food outlets are really starting to try and change their product mix deal with kind of waning demand for unhealthy snack foods um and fast foods um you can start to see that yeah McDonald's offering a lot more salads, kind of a lot more kind of fresh products. And they're really starting to kind of realize that consumers are less wanting to eat less, more fatty and less salty kind of goods. What does that mean for the fast food industry then? Yeah, the fast food industry, you guys see, is changing. Obviously, you have um, companies such as Uber Eats and Deliveroo and Foodora also changing the industry. Um, but also, you can see that 
there's a much wider range of fast food uh, companies offering healthier foods, uh, salads, sandwiches, kind of wraps, really kind of taking into consumer demand away because it's kind of moving less towards unhealthy burgers and more towards kind of salads and kind of more kind of exotic foods. I guess you could say like kind of Mexican and Japanese foods are getting higher and higher demanded for fast food options. And Uber Eats offers uh, consumers a platform to buy these products. And, and so uh, that would mean that the fast food industry is going to change quite dramatically over the next five years. Yeah, you could see, like, um, especially with platforms such as Uber Eats and MenuLog, that the fast food industry is changing completely. Uh, Uber Eats and MenuLog offer kind of small uh, businesses a chance to be on a kind of or kind of a higher up in terms of convenience and in terms of access to consumers so it really gives them a, a leg up compared to um, bigger players such as mcdonald's and kfc um they start to see they're kind of losing market share because of smaller players can eat into their demand from consumers the big food chains will uh, be very different in a few years time from what we can see now yeah well we're also seeing that mcdonald's have just released um they've just started selling on uber eats as well so they obviously know that that's kind of the way fast food sales are going to be done in the future you know you can just get on your smartphone you can order some fast food straight away it gets delivered in 20 25 minutes and then yeah so mcdonald's obviously realized that this is kind of the way technologically it's going to go in the future well nathan that's uh, fascinating stuff thank you very much for your time yeah no worries um thanks for that so what do you think? Pretty interesting, isn't it, Leon? I think so. It's not a good not a good sign for Coke, though. Well, they've got to be more flexible. Tastes change. That's right. Coca-Cola's really struggling now. Yes, yes, it is. Maybe it ought to go into petrol or something like that. <laughs> well, well, the people are moving away from that sort of drink. It's interesting. I was talking to my barista today, and he's saying there's a move away from espresso towards filter coffee in Melbourne. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating isn't isn't that interesting now shane oliver shane oliver the the market's been lagging for quite some time it's been a long time since drinks what's your view about this well, it's certainly a good sign. It's come a little bit earlier than I would have thought. I would have thought it would have been a 2018 story that we'd gone through the 6,000 level, but it's it's come early, which is nice. Um, I think what's happening here is that we're being dragged up by the stronger performances we're seeing in global equity markets. So even though we've managed to get through the 6,000 level, we're only up you know, in single digits so far this year in terms of price gains obviously better in terms of uh, dividend when you end the dividends in. Um, whereas global share markets, US is up 15, 16%. Uh, China's up in the 20s. Japan and Europe are both seeing solid double-digit gains. So we have been a laggard for some time. And I think what's happened here is that that ongoing strength we're seeing in global markets has sort of dragged our market up as well, as investors have said, well, yes, the Aussie share market should be la- should be lagging to some degree. The profit growth is not as good. Um, but maybe it, it, it needs a bit of a catch-up, and that's what we've seen happen here. What also helped it was uh, iron ore prices uh, rising, and, uh, and that helped all the resources stock. The oil prices are up around $63, and uh, that's uh, driven all the energy stocks, and uh, the banks have put in some good profits. Yeah, we've certainly seen a bunch of things come together to push it over that 6,000 line. But it's, as you said earlier, it's been a long time between drinks. It's taken a long time to get to this point. You know, the iron ore story is, is part of that. But iron ore, of course, is still well down on price from its previous highs, as is in energy prices. But obviously, gains in commodities do help our markets. Um, but at the end of the day, our market is up something like 6% uh, year to date, whereas global share, share markets are up by a lot more. Um, the fact that we've gone through this sort of marker, this line in the sand, is a good sign that we're sort of heading back towards normality. But in, in the great scheme of things, we're still lagging what's going on internationally. 
Of course, uh, November, December, January are usually pretty good times for markets, aren't they? Yeah, we certainly come into what is a seasonally positive period for share markets. And the week period, of course, is from May to September, October. The old saying, sell in May, go away, come back on St. Ledger's Day. Whereas the period November, December, starting initially in the US and flowing onto our market, November, December, January, usually good for share markets. And in fact, that, that seasonal threat strength usually continues out to May. So if the seasonal pattern is any guide, then we've still got more upside ahead of us in the short term. At some point out there, there'll be the inevitable correction. We've gone a long way without the US share market having a 5% pullback. We we actually have had a uh, decent correction this year. We we sort of pushed up towards the 6,000 level in May and then promptly fell 5 or 6%. So we've arguably had a bit of a correction, whereas the US share market hasn't. So at some point, the US shares will go through a bit of a correction and that might drag our market down. But I think the broad trend is likely to remain up. And the reasons I would say that fundamentally is that the valuations on the local share market and indeed most global markets are still reasonable, particularly if you allow for still very low interest rates and low bond yields, valuations look okay. Then uh, we're seeing earnings growth come through. It's a bit slower in Australia. It's around 5 6% in, an underlying, in underlying terms, whereas globally it's uh, most recently running around 18%. So the profit story is a pretty strong one. We're seeing good economic indicators come out globally. That supports profit growth going forward forward. And at the same time, we've still got relatively low inflation and benign central banks in the great scheme of things. So that uh, that combination of good growth, good profit, but relatively low inflation and benign central banks is uh, really the sweet spot in the cycle, which is normally a good time for share market. Right. And of course, uh, the US market's been going very strongly since uh, Donald Trump came in. And of course, you've got the GOP tax plan and uh, Trump's talking about uh, tax cuts. And that's, that's uh, driving the market forward, isn't it? Yeah, there's certainly a bunch of positives coming out in the US, uh, and that's been the case for some time now. I think that this rally, this big rally we've seen, really got underway back in February of last year. If you recall, the start of 2016 was a nervous time for investors. The Aussie share market had had a 20% fall from its uh, high in April, May the year before, and other markets had had similar falls. Europe and Japan was even bigger. US was a little bit less, but a lot of doom and gloom around at the start of 2016. As we went through last year, that gave way to a a sense of optimism emerging that uh, the global economy was accelerating. Profits were picking up again after a bit of a slump, and that's really continued through this year. And then adding on to that in the US is, of course, the uh, the talk of tax cuts, which increasingly looks likely to become a reality. Still a fair way to go yet, but that's uh, still a big factor in the US. Um, I think the share market recently has also liked the uh, the fact that um, Jerome Powell was appointed to replace Janet Yellen at the Fed. There was a fear maybe that a more hawkish individual would be appointed as the next head of the Fed, whereas uh, Jerome Powell is seen as more of the same. And and generally speaking, you know, there was a hurricane, some hurricanes came through in the US in August, September. That was a bit of a drag on the recent report, profit reporting season over there. But even then, it's coming better than expected. The initial expectation was for 4% profit growth, with insurers being dragged down by the hurricanes. But uh, the outcome looks to have been around 7%. If you strip out the hurricanes, you're up closer to 10%. So the story out of the US does does look very good. But uh, at the same time, the unknown equation in the US is what's going to happen with rates. So the, the Fed has indicated they will be increasing rate. And uh, given that Powell is going to be doing pretty much the same as Yellen, uh, we can expect that will continue. And uh, what impact would that have on the market? Well, my feeling is that uh, the story for US shares in a relative sense isn't as good as it is for other markets around the world, that the US share market has run ahead, its valuations are not quite as attractive as they are elsewhere, 
Um, and on some measures, the US share market's a bit overvalued. But whichever way you look at it in a relative sense, there is better to be value to be found in, say, Japan, in Europe, even in Australia, better value than in the US. And at the same time, the US central bank is in the process of monetary tightening. They're reversing the quantitative easing over a few years back, and they're steadily raising interest rates, and that will probably continue in December with another rate hike, and then again another three hikes next year under Jerome Powell, starting probably in March. So that drumbeat of uh, tightening in the US, I think, will will start to um, constrain the US share market over time. I don't think it will necessarily cause a bear market there, but it will constrain the gains um, at a time when there's better opportunities elsewhere, globally, outside of the US. Now, uh, the interesting question is we've hit 6,000. What would it take to get to 7,000? Because it's been such a long time between drinks, as we said. It certainly has been. And, of course, uh, the last time we hit 6,000 was <laughs> over a decade ago. Um, and, of course, we almost got to 7,000. We got as high as 6,850 or thereabouts in on November the 1st, 2007. And then, of course, the GFC hit and the rest became history. Um, I, I suspect, I mean, that's that's a fairly hefty gain from here. It's uh, in capital growth terms, it's um, 17, 18% or so upside from here. To get that sort of upside, it really needs uh, continued strength in profits. I think we'll, we'll get through the 7,000 eventually, but it's probably several, several years away before that happens. To get there faster, I think, would require much faster growth in profits. I mean, you can't rule it out if the global economy continues to accelerate. That flows through to commodity prices and confidence in Australia, then uh, that that might give you double-digit profit growth in Australia, which could get us up towards that 7,000 level. But it's it's not my base case. I think we're still in a, a relatively constrained environment for the Australian economy and therefore for Australian profit. And indeed, the uh, RBA yesterday in their uh, in their statement uh, when they kept interest rates on hold said the great unknown is about household consumer spending. Yeah, the, the key thing about the Reserve Bank is that they're, they're fairly even-handed at present. They're, they're optimistic that growth will eventually pick up towards their 3% sort of uh, forecasts. Eventually see inflation picking up, signs of improvement in non-mining investment, uh, strong infrastructure investment. Obviously, we're seeing good export volumes as uh, mining projects are completed. But the Reserve Bank is also aware of the risks, and there are big risks around the Australian consumer. We saw uh, for September very weak retail sales growth in Australia. Consumer confidence is still a little bit subdued. The housing cycle starting to turn down, particularly in Sydney. That, That will be a bit of a drag as well. And so the Reserve Bank, I think, is really just sort of sitting on its hands and probably that's likely to remain so for some time to come, probably at least out to the end of 2018, maybe even into 2019 before we start to see the Reserve Bank raising interest rates. But that all, I think, adds up to a sort of an environment where the Aussie economy keeps growing. We're not going to have the recession that lots of people keep saying is inevitable. By the same token, it may not feel as strong as it it is in other parts of the world. Out of interest, I just saw today, you know, the retail sales growth numbers out of Europe for September up 3.7%. Now, Europe's traditionally a laggard. The latest numbers in Australia for the year to uh, September are up 1.4%. So the Europeans are are growing their spending faster than the Australians, which is a big turn compared to what used to be the case. Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. It's been delightful talking to you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
So how do you read that, Leon? Well, as Shane says, November, December, January are very, very good months for the share market. And so we can expect more of the same. Although, as he says, it might take some time before the local share market breaks 7,000. Yeah, but we're still holding six plus. That's right. It's not bad at all. Now the news. What have you got for us this week, Leon? Well, Gary, resumption of Brexit talks, fallout from the sexual harassment scandal and industrial data are likely to see the pound fall this week. The pound has been falling for the last three weeks on concerns about the Brexit talks and the Bank of England failing to signal the start of a tightening cycle after raising rates last Thursday. BOE Governor Mark Carney said the nuke's move on rates could depend on the outcome of Brexit. Added to that is the impact of a sexual harassment scandal in Westminster, which has already brought down one senior cabinet minister, and also added to that is uh, Theresa May has lost a second cabinet minister in a week. Pratel, that's not a good look when you're entering the Brexit talks. Nomura International and Mizuho Bank now say that issue is now a tail risk for the pound, with Prime Minister Theresa May's judgment being questioned and the government's slim majority in Parliament. And the pound is also expected to come under pressure from this week's economic news on housing price data on Tuesday and industrial production on Friday. Altogether, not a very good outlook, is it? No. Now, Gary, the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept rates on hold for the 15th month in a row as expected, which is a fairly safe bet on Cup Day for the rate that stops the nation. Uh, The RBA board left the cash rate at 1.5% where it's expected to stay for the rest of the year. And the RBA has forecast that Australia's GDP will pick up an average around 3% over the next few years. But it said the big area of uncertainty is the outlook for household consumption. It said household incomes are growing slowly and debt levels are high. And added to that, are the persistently weak inflation figures running below 2%. And this means rates will remain low for the foreseeable future. Of course, the RBA is really in a bind, isn't it? It's created by the level of mortgage stress out there in the in the public. Well, now economists are tipping maybe a rate rise in 2018 yeah. and uh, become a more serious story in 2019. But uh, we're talking some time out before it happens. Yeah, it'll be a while before they can you know, be comfortable about moving it up. Now, the ANZ Roy Moore Confidence Index slipped by 0.7% last week to 112.6 on the back of poor retail figures from the ABS, showing that sales were unchanged from August. When they fell 0.5%, economists had been tipping a 0.4% rise. The latest survey takes consumer confidence slightly below the monthly average since 1990 of 112.9 in what the ANZ described as broadly negative figures. Sentiment towards current household finances slipped slightly following the 53 percent gain the week before. Consumers were more pessimistic about longer-term future economic conditions, with that sub-index slipping 2.8% last week to its lowest value in eight weeks. And the outlook for future financial conditions fell for the third straight week, bringing the index down to its lowest point in almost three months. So consumer confidence is not looking good. But there's a very small bright spot, and that is if the share market keeps up, superannuitants are going to do a bit better than they've been I think so too. And the other bright spot is a construction industry. Yeah, still got uh, got some muscle in there. That's right, because according to the Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association Australian Performance of Construction Index, the construction industry expanded for the ninth consecutive month, although there are signs of a slowdown. The index eased slightly by 1.5 points to 53.2 in October. Still, any reading above 50 indicates expansion. And 
The big driver was engineering construction. Its rate of expansion reached a 10-year high on the back of rising levels of non-mining infrastructure work. House building recording growth, albeit at a slower pace, indicating continued demand. Commercial construction remained stable, but apartment buildings was in negative territory, although the rate of decline moderated from the previous month's downturn. Yeah, apartments are the elephant in the room, and part of that seems to be due to the increasing pressure China is putting on the expatriation of money. I think so too, yeah. And there's an oversupply issue. Absolutely, and and no bidders. That's a huge issue. Now, the Australian Taxation Office says it will use information from the Paradise Papers to investigate Australians caught up in global tax avoidance. The ATO says it has been working for several months in anticipation of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists releasing the so-called Paradise Papers. And over last weekend, 13 million files from offshore services firms based in Bermuda and Singapore were published around the world. And the ATO is part of the Joint International Task Force on Shared Intelligence and Collaboration. That's it's 37 national tax administrations working together on cooperative investigations. And domestically, it works with the Australian Criminal Intelligence, the Australian Federal Police and Austrac, and serious cases are referred to the Serious Crime Financial Task Force for potential criminal investigation, although it has to be said no Australian has yet been found to be guilty of anything. Part of the problem with the Paradise Papers as compared with what came out earlier in the Panama Papers is that a lot of the behaviour is in fact legal under the current laws. Totally legal. Yeah. It just doesn't look good. Yeah. (laughs) Looks shocking. That's right. Now, Westpac has lifted its full-year cash profit of 3% to $8.06 billion. The bank's statutory net profit was up 7% to $7.99 billion. Westpac said there was a 24% decrease in loan impairment charges with solid balance sheet growth and improved asset quality. Net interest income was 4% higher over the year, but non-interest income was down 1% from lower fees and commissions with less wealth and insurance income coming in. A lot of the, the profit there was about cost cuts. Also on the bank, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia posted a first-quarter profit of $2.65 billion, up 6%. Australia's largest bank posted unaudited statutory net profit of approximately $2.8 billion in the quarter. Bad debts fell to $6.1 billion from $6.8 billion a year ago. Volume growth and improved margins pushed up income 4%. Consumer arrears were seasonally lower but continued to be elevated in Western Australia. Expenses rose 4%, including what Commonwealth Bank called provisions for our current estimates of future project costs associated with regulatory actions and compliance programs. It has to be said, though, that the latest set of figures don't take into account the costs of Austrac suing the CBA for alleged money laundering failures and CBA says it's preparing its defence and it's not yet possible to estimate any potential liabilities. But they're going to cop it, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. All of this is good for people who've got bank shares, but in the background, you know, just as technology's taking jobs away, you've got uh, digital banks showing up. You're almost no fees and uh, a lot easier to operate with. And that's very much the future. It is indeed. Now, shares in the newly spun-off domain are set to begin trading on the ASX 200 next week. In a vote of confidence for Fairfax Media's plan to spin off its prized real estate listing business, the S&P Dow Jones indices announced on Tuesday that Domain Holdings, or DHA, will join the nation's top 200 public companies by market capitalisation when its listing takes effect on November the 16th. That's next Tuesday. Fairfax will spin off one share in Domain for every 10 Fairfax shares held, with shares to begin trading on a deferred settlement basis. Shareholders will also retain their existing Fairfax shares, and the the move this week received federal court approval after the near-unanimous vote in favour of separation at Fairfax's annual general meeting in Sydney last Thursday. 
Thursday. Now, more than 1.7 billion shares, or 99.93%, were voted in favour of the plan. Now, Citibank analysts have pegged DHA's value at $3.50 a share and valued the newly constituted Fairfax, which will have a 60% stake in domain, at, wait for it, 70 Cents. That's pretty <laughs> steep difference, isn't it? That's right. Trading in domain shares will begin at a zero price. Yeah. So let's take a look at that. Now, McGrath shares nosedive plunging to an all-time low on Monday after telling the market its earnings had fallen short of expectations. And this is very bad news for the property market, Gary. McGrath shares fell as low as 25% before closing 15.52% lower at 52 cents. Now, McGrath was the first real estate agency to list on the in December 2015 at the height of the property boom with an offer price of $2.10. It's now $0.52. And the concern for the market, and not just McGrath investors, is that the share price collapse reflects the downturn in the property market. McGrath said it was influenced by a number of factors, including lower volumes of listings and fewer agents. It said government policy changes around foreign buyers and developers coupled with tightened lending restrictions have particularly affected this segment, it said in its statement to the market. And this coincides with the latest figures from CoreLogic's Home Value Index showing property prices were flat right across the country in October, led by Sydney, which saw prices falling 0.6% in the three months to October. And the McGrath board said it was not expecting the company's pre-tax earnings to exceed $16.6 million, which is a full-year estimate provided by the stockbroking firm Bell Potter. And McGrath said it would need, in their words, to make significant cost cuts that may not be in the best interest of the business in the long term to deliver a result that would align with the Bell Potter forecast. Now, McGrath says it has a preliminary plan to save about $5 million dollars a year from the business after it incurs a one-off restructuring cost of 1.4 million to 1.6 million and if those cuts were implemented it says the earnings would be 20 to 25 percent less than what the analysts are estimating now mcgrath operates a hybrid business model with some of its offices company owned and others owned by franchisees and mcgrath said the current market environment does not support the expansion of company owned offices in the near term and that's very bad and it's a worry because it's a sign of how the property market is going yeah it's really fragile isn't it that's right it's a really and that's a really important story now also um, as we were talking about with Shane the local market gave investors a cup day treat and closed above 6,000 for the first time since January 2008 just a few months before the global financial crisis hit actually and the benchmark S&P ASX 200 closed 60 points or 1% higher at 6,014 the all ordinaries which closed the 6,000 level last week mirrored this also rising 60 points and 1% to close at 6,087. Now, it was a significant day of trading as the ASX 200 had been stuck at 13% below its peak from a decade ago while Wall Street had been hitting new records. And as Shane Oliver said, we're being dragged along by overseas markets. Now, Mm. the Australian market has been underperforming, weighed down by the collapse in commodity prices, tighter monetary policy, anemic inflation figures, and record low wages growth. And as said, the rise on the Aussie bourse was fueled by oil prices rising on the back of the Saudi crisis and rallies on overseas share markets. It also comes just weeks after the 30th anniversary of the 1987 stock market crash. It's a bit onerous. <laughs> That's right. And on a day when trading volumes were lower on account of the public holiday in Victorian, traders were taking time off to watch the race that stops the nation. Energy and resources stocks and banks were driving the markets higher. And that's a good sign. It, it is indeed. Yeah, it's starting to look a bit a bit promising, isn't it? That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're talking to Servcore Chief Operating Officer Marcus Mufarish. And that's going to be fascinating. And is indeed. If you can tune in to us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.